This is Cybok, the cybersecurity body of knowledge. Distilling the knowledge from internationally recognized experts and providing foundational education and training for the cybersecurity sector. Hello and welcome to Cybok. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Joining us today is Ingrid Verbauheide. She's a professor at KU Lerven in Belgium and is author of the Hardware Security Knowledge Area. For different people, hardware means different things. If you talk to a networking guy, uh, for him, hardware will be just a networking box. But if you talk to a software guy, hardware means the processor he runs it, uh, runs his applications on. And if you talk to a hardware person like me, hardware means all the little components that we make a chip of, right? An integrated circuit. So, um, and I think the hardware security means how do I secure these devices, right? Well, uh, let's dig into some of the details here. Uh, one of the things that you, you start off uh, this knowledge area with is this notion of layers of abstraction. Can, can you take us through that? Uh, okay, yes. And so the reason why I've introduced those, these layers of abstraction is that I wanted to make a little bit of order in the house. Like, as I said, talking to different people from different disciplines, hardware means different things to them. And so, but you can order it by actually introducing those layers of abstraction. Um, for for system levels guy, hardware means, I mean, the boxes he's working with. Uh, um, but these boxes will implement algorithms. These algorithms need implementations in software and hardware. Um, and that's our, uh, the different levels of abstraction. So at the top level, I call it systems. Below that, I call it algorithm or architecture level. But then as we really talk about hardware people, we have concepts such as register transfer, where um, you introduce a clock. Your every processor or every um, silicon device might have a clock. And at the bottom, you really end up with transistors and things that will be fabricated um, in silicon foundries. But so if you make a complex system, you actually have to decompose it in its little components. If you start from the little components, you have to kind of in a systematic manner reconstruct them until you have a complete complex system. Can we talk about the notion of root of trust? I mean, how when we're talking about hardware, how do we know that what we're working with is trustworthy? That's a very important question. And, and when we talk about these Hardware abstraction layers, um, as I said, if you're building a complex system, you rely on the fact that the boxes you buy are trusted. But for the guy who makes the boxes, he relies on the fact that the, the components inside his box are trusted. And for the guy who, or the person who makes the, the integrated chips there, they rely on secure components there. And so at the end, you want to minimize what you need to trust. And that's what I call a root of trust. But again, a root of trust means different things for people working at different abstraction layers, complex systems down to the transistors. And for, for really hardware people that make silicon chips, the root of trusts are often, I mean, what is my piece of memory 
where I store my secrets. Um, so if my secret keys leak, my crypto protocol has no value. Or if I am using really weak random numbers, my I can have the most beautiful security or communication protocol. If the random numbers fail, the thing is broken. So you try to figure out in your decomposition what is the minimum amount I really have to trust, which I cannot verify. And I mean, it strikes me when someone is is ordering hardware. I mean, let's talk about uh, you know chips, for example. If I'm if I'm ordering a batch of microprocessors for a project that I'm working on, um, I, I suppose I assume that what's delivered is is what was ordered. Um, how how do organizations go about verifying uh, the security of the hardware that they're working with? A uh, very good question. Um, because I think in, I mean, you order chips, it's at these days still, I would say, too much relies on trust. Uh, so you have ordered chips from a famous semiconductor company in the US or in Asia, and last time they worked nicely, this time hopefully they'll work again nicely. And there is a chain of trust in making those chips. There is a chain of trust in delivering those chips. Chips are maybe designed in, in here, with components delivered, um, IP, intellectual property modules uh, delivered here, put together somewhere in Asia, fabricated in yet a different country, put into packages somewhere else, tested somewhere else. This is really, really international. Um, and very, very tough. Um, and I think there is not enough done yet to make that chain trustworthy. And it strikes me that with the, the increasing sophistication of these chips, as we, we have things like systems on a chip, uh, it becomes harder and harder to make sure that there isn't something you know, lurking in the silicon that, that, um, that you hadn't counted on. Uh, yes, that's that's tough. And so, who's trusting who there? So, if I make a if I make a new system on chip, it might be that I'm licensing an IP module that maybe I even found it cheaply on on the internet, might have um, Trojan circuits inside. Um, when you compose those together, what are you getting, right? So, I think there techniques are needed that even if you have untrusted components on your chip that actually they're isolated and any effect they would have is isolated. Uh, it's the similar, I would say, with composition of large software packages. You might also license libraries or something like that and you compose them together. You have to make sure that the effects are, are minimized. But yes, that's a big issue. What goes into uh, sort of reverse engineering hardware for, for in that verification um, uh, process is it uh, is it more complex than say analyzing software? Uh, yes, the reverse engineering hardware. When you really look at the transistor level, the only thing you can do is actually delayer the chips. Um, mm. Chips are made by baking multiple layers, and that can go from twenty, fifty. I don't know how many layers these days people have, and so. If you want to really figure out what the chip is doing, people will delayer, but with delayering, you also destroy, right? So it's not going to work mm. anymore. Um, so you can delayer one, but how do you know that all the others are still working? Mm. Also, I think a very tough problem is um, not just do I have a real or a fake chip, huh? um, 
something that's um, that's kind of fake, yeah. Also, mm-hmm. by by reusing old chips, that's another problem. Um, mm. So there are these. We don't recycle correctly all the electronics we we toss. Uh, sometimes for complex systems, you need spare parts. These spare parts maybe cannot be bought anymore after 20 years. The silicon is no longer fabricated. So these people go for second-hand spare parts. How do you know how much mileage this chip already had that you're putting back in your system, right? So mm. uh, there, also there, there is still a lot of, I would say, hardware security problems. Yeah, one of the things that uh, the paper goes into is this notion of of secure platforms. Can, can you take us through what some of the available options are there? Um, secure platforms. It's it's trying to be a more generic uh, name for um, what's in different standards might have been called different things, uh, like uh, a trusted execution environment or TPM, that's also an example, maybe trusted platforms. So there is lots of evolutions in that direction. Maybe components such as now more recently uh, Intel SGXs, which are added to processors. So people try to find solutions in complex system on chips that you have a partition of the chip where you can um, add or where can you can ro- uh, run your code in a protected way, I would say. There's another section here. Um, you go into this notion of hardware support for software security at the architectural level. That interaction between the hardware and the software it seems to me to be, it could be a critical one. What goes into those sorts of processes? Hardware support for software security. Um, with that, I mean that... So that what are the hardware features we add to processors so that software developers can be can get more security. Um, I thinking, for instance, software people would like to have isolation of their data. Uh, so if you have multiple routines running on the same platform, you don't want that one user or one thread has access to the data of another thread. So how what hardware uh, walls or protections or bits or things like that can you provide? And this goes from very complex systems like trusted execution environments to simple things where you can set bits to an ARM trust zone where you have like separate running of trusted and untrusted software. That's what I mean with what can we in hardware build so that the software people have more software guarantees? Mm. And some of that has to do with uh, things like cryptographic algorithms. Um, what goes into the design process there? Cryptographic algorithms give gives us protection of data that being encrypted or data that needs to be communicated. But one of the issues these days is that these algorithms while they are mathematically strong, there is lots of attacks on the actual implementation. So for instance, um, if I run an algorithm which has lots of large number multiplications, it's going to be much slower than just multiplying by a zero or one. So 
out of timing variations, power consumption variations, cash behavior, is data in the cash or not in the cash? The, all, the mathematical constructs are not broken, but the actual key can be leaked. And that's the challenge when implementing crypto, hard, crypto algorithms in hardware is how can I make sure that while I'm running those algorithms, they don't leak information about the key or about secret data. You know, one of the things that fascinates me that you touch on here in the paper are um, field programmable gate arrays. Um, and I suppose, I mean, it, it's a special case of, of of dealing with security when you have hardware that itself can be reconfigured in the field. It, its functionality is not baked in. Yes, and it's going to be more and more of this. Um, so, so far we consider FPGAs like standalone devices where you can implement uh, things. But I think uh, major players like uh, Intel, they're considering adding FPGA, call it coprocessors or little data pads where you can program your own functionality at the customer site, right? So if you want to accelerate something specific, you could put it on an FPGA. Now, FPGAs require their own uh, security. And again, there, there is lots different lots of different aspects of security for FPGAs. Um, it's about protecting intellectual property. It's about um, these FPGAs being used to attack other, other devices or leaking information. What if you have also a multi-tenant situation where multiple users might use the same FPGA? What happens if you put those FPGA in the cloud, have some kind of cloud servers based on FPGAs? Because we know that FPGAs, if you program them well, are way more uh, power efficient than CPUs, if you know what you're hmm. implementing there. Yes. Well, let's go through some of the types of attacks uh, and some of the countermeasures. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of some of the side channel attacks that you list here. What are the, some of the common ways that uh, bad guys come at hardware? Um, so in the old days, life was easy because your computer would sit either in your office or in a nice server room. And so these servers would talk to each, each other. Eh? A bank would talk to its central servers and things like that. The thing is that now we have electronics all everywhere in our pockets, on our desks. I mean, um, in your dishwasher, everyone. I mean, there's other cyborgs on cyber physical systems. And that means that these implementations are now in the hands of, of, of the attackers. Think about a simple smart card, uh, smart cards which you use to pay or smart cards with your identity on it. So but there is lots of ways that um, attackers could handle these, these de devices and try to steal information. And one category which gets a lot of attention is called the so-called side channel attacks. Because what you actually do is you don't disturb the device you actually do only passive observations. Passive observations, you check how long it takes to um, make an encryption or um, that's timing attack. Or you monitor how much power is consumed or you monitor what is the EM radiation. And from this, you try to use information. And so um, 
one of the things which hardware people try to do is make those implementations of crypto um, independent, I mean, the running time or independent of the data they're processing. I mean, CPUs, for instance, are highly optimized. If you do multiplication by zero, the CPU is, is, is intelligent and will abort. But mm. that tells you what it's doing, right? Um, so you want implementations, or if you have simple if-then-else's classes, you want to make sure that the if class and the else class have the same execution time, independent of the keys that being processed. So that's a, that's a countermeasure. And so many compilers will kind of compile away all these tricks we're trying to do to make code running independent of the data they're processing. This is really at the hardware level. Yeah. Well, let's go through some of the design process itself. When when people are designing secure hardware, um, what are some of the techniques that they uh, that they use? What's what are the best practices? Um, so the first thing you would do is make sure that your code runs in a time independent of the data or the keys that you're processing. The second thing you should do is that your code runs with a power consumption profile, which is again independent of the data or the keys you're processing. And um, independency, you can do that by techniques which are called masking or techniques which, which are called um, randomization. That's used, I mean, if, if, if I have a crypto algorithm and I make sure that the key changes each time that I'm running the algorithm, it doesn't matter that, I mean, the attacker should already disclose or figure out what the key is with only one measurement. That's that's kind of tough and might be old. By the time he has the key, it's it's passed. So this, these are, are, are things which people try to do. You might use at the hardware level, really decouple capacitances. Um, you might add noise to your measurements by jittering the clock, playing with, uh, with the power supply, things like that. Just try to make it difficult for the, for the attacker to find information that leaks. That's really hardware level. Yeah. Well, what, what do you hope that people come away from? What are the take-homes when someone has... Uh, read through uh, this paper, what do you hope that they leave with? I hope that they understand that hardware security is a really broad topic and um, goes through these different abstraction layers. So trying to figure out at each abstraction layer, what's my root of trust? Try to minimize what I need to trust. And then when you decompose that little box, root of trust, you're one level down, you're go all the way to the transistors, you say, this is the minimum I need to trust. Maybe also come up with better design methods that you kind of get secure construction by design, which is often now even a problem that its security is added as an afterthought. Um, Try to reduce complexity. Making systems on chip is tough, much tougher to protect than, than small little devices. Our thanks to Ingrid Verbaugheda for joining us. You can check out the entire Hardware Security Knowledge Area publication on the Cybok website, cybok.org. 
To learn more about the Cybok Project and the knowledge area we spoke about today, visit cybok.org. This podcast is a product of the University of Bristol. Cybok is funded by the UK National Cybersecurity Programme and led by the University of Bristol's Professor Awais Rashid, along with Professor Andrew Martin, Professor George Denisis, Professor Emil Lupu, Professor Steve Schneider, and Dr. Howard Shivers. The Cybok Podcast is produced by The Cyberwire with coordinating producers Jennifer Iben, Kelsey Bond, and Bristol University's Yvonne Rigby. The executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Listening.